Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and I am joining you in a week of great international turmoil. So great, in fact, that we can't choose a single topic for this podcast. So we're going to be looking at two of the huge geopolitical, geostrategic stories which uh, have erupted over the last few days. Firstly, we're going to follow the, the headlines and look at the consequences of the attack on Sergei Skripal and his daughter in the UK by uh, uh, exploring how this growing story is going to change not just the British relationship with Russia, but uh, what it means for the future of the West at a time when Donald Trump has uh, also got rid of his Secretary of State um, uh, Rex Tillerson and uh, is uh, installing a new national security team. Um, but uh, maybe an even bigger and more important story uh, was emerging as this started, which was the eruption of uh, an enormous trade war, something which we have also talked about in the past as a theoretical possibility, but is now uh, real. And uh, we're also watching what that means for the US role in the world and for the EU relationship with the US, but also with other great powers. To help me make sense of these two big stories, I'm joined by Kadri Leek, who is in London and uh, I think has been quite bound up in the, the, the wave of hysteria and commentary on the, on the Skripal story. And sitting with me here in Berlin is Sebastian Deline, who is our expert on all things economic, who's been following the trade war from uh, the very beginning and been thinking for a long time about uh, about the global trade regime and what it means for Europe. So, Kadri, why don't we start with the Skripal story? And we have just heard uh, about some of the. Well, why don't you why don't you tell us where we're at? Well, where we are. Um, on 5th of March, um, a former Russian military intelligence officer who worked as double agent for the UK uh, was found together with his daughter collapsed on a bench in Salisbury. And it soon emerged that both were, had been poisoned with nerve agent, which, of course, uh, reminded everyone of Alexander Litvinenko case another Russian fugitive who was poisoned uh, with radioactive polonium in the UK in, uh, back in 2006. And back then, polonium was traced back to Russia, but uh, culprits were not punished, and actually proper inquiry also happened uh, much later. It was reopened uh, only when Russia had annexed Crimea and relations soured. So this time, it quickly emerged that the nerve agent used can again be traced back to Russia. It's an agent called Novichok that apparently no one else but Russia produces. And that put UK under pressure to do something about it and to do quickly. So yesterday, Prime Minister Theresa May gave a statement to the House of Commons where she outlined a range of measures. 
Now, many commentators have found Rose to be underwhelming because really the pinnacle of the measure is his expulsion of 23 Russian intelligence officers from the UK. That's a big number. Uh, by the standards of expulsions, that's uh, big. Uh, but as a response for a chemical weapons attack, that is not big. I think it's the largest number since 1985 in the height of the Cold War. Yes, that is true. It's the largest in, the, in, in decades. And, and, you know, that, that creates some impression. Um, and then there, is, there are some further measures um, outlined uh, to be taken later on. And that involves greater scrutiny of Russian visitors and their money and potential asset freezes. Um, for what it's worth, I actually think that this range of measures is quite prudent. Uh, Britain leaves itself ample room to escalate uh, as investigation proceeds, as we get more detailed and as it manages to build up support among allies. Support has not really been bad. I mean, everyone has voiced concern and taken Britain's side. But of course, things will be trickier when there is a need to agree about concrete measures, be they new sanctions or, or whatever. So that's going to be complicated. And I think it was wise of London not to, um, not to call for something they cannot deliver. I think it was also wise that the government refrained from doing some things that would be self-harm, such as banning Russian TV channel RT, that is not really important, but Russia would have retaliated by kicking out many British outlets from Russia, and British channels, in contrast, are important source of Russia-related news and analysis to the whole Western world. So we clearly would have suffered more. I'm also happy that we didn't lump together different issues, such as you know starting to arm Ukraine as a response to uh, attack by Russia on the UK, because I, I think we deserve to be kept separate. Ukraine is uh, entitled to its sovereignty regardless of how Russia behaves. That all makes a lot of sense. One of the big questions as well is whether these measures actually have got a, a real goal beyond punishing Russia and showing that Britain is kind of angry. I mean, if there is an escalation, what do you think the escalation should be linked to? Is it about how much Russia cooperates in terms of the the, the, the investigations into the Skripal murder or um, releases information to, to the Chemical Weapons Agency? I mean, what, what exactly would the reasons for escalation, further escalation be? Well, I think the reason for further escalation, yeah, should be uh, non-cooperation. And let's see what Russia does. Because when we come to Russia's motivation and behavior, um, I cannot make sense of this full story. And I have, I have asked everyone I trust on Russia, and they cannot either. Because it is out of character. I mean, Skripal was what they call a traded spy. He was exchanged. Such people usually are immune. They are no danger in terms of uh, their potential to share information. Everything they could share is known. That's taken into account. All the passwords have been changed, uh, so forth. He has nothing of value to to share. Uh, yes, some insights um, into KGB's thinking and so forth, but that's normal, that's regular, that's taken into account. 
So that has not been a common practice, and I don't see why why President Putin would want to change that practice, because being former KGB, he knows what this is about, and he knows why this is important, that spy swaps happen and you keep to the rules. So that makes no sense to me. I don't think he needed that escalation right now. It's too late to feed into the elections meaningfully, and information operation in Russia domestically is not what it would be if this was a planned uh, action. You don't think it's just a, a, about the kind of honor code within the uh, Russian intelligence agencies that um, to deter other people from becoming double agents? Well, that is the speculation, yes, that Putin kills Skripal because he uh, hates spies. He does. Uh, but yet again, why, why now? Why with an agent like that? I mean, they would have had ample time and opportunity to do something about Skripal uh, earlier or later on when he was still in Russian jail. Um, I, I don't think so. And Reese. You know, the more I look at Russian foreign policy, actually, their concrete actions are really inspired by by sort of general principles or desire to send a signal or it depends a little bit on who is behind the action. But usually and when it comes from the Kremlin or especially foreign ministry, such actions are always they have much more concrete goals, uh, much more thought through. Now, foreign ministry probably was, of course, not in the loop at all. It looks like, to start with, they didn't know what was happening. And when they realized what was happening, they actually grew increasingly worried, you could see. Because, you know, for someone like foreign ministry, chemical weapons is a serious thing, and they know it. So, uh, to sum it up, I think we are still waiting for the last word from Russia. And, of course, uh, you know, a few days before the elections, Putin doesn't want to do anything that would look like he's justifying vis-à-vis the West. But let's wait until Monday and let's see what sort of signals Moscow will start sending on Monday. Because, to me, this whole story is a bit of a puzzle and I, I think there are a few important pieces missing. And these pieces might feed into further British reaction as well. So, Sebastian, you've been sitting here watching it in Berlin. What's the reaction been in the German government and media circles? I mean, of course, this was all reported, but it has been a bit overshadowed by, well, our election of a new government, you know, and um, the ministers being uh, uh, sworn in. So it is, uh, of course, Germany is concerned about these issues, but it it hasn't been very high on, on the agenda here. But the Chancellor has come out, expressed solidarity with Theresa May, took a phone call with her. Sure. I mean, I think this is standard procedure in cases like this, um, and um, especially because the, the relationship between the EU and uh, or the rest of the EU and, and Britain might have been strained a little bit at the moment. Um, because of Brexit. Because of Brexit, of course, uh, and, and showing that, that Brexit uh, well w- will, will not lead to, to an expulsion of, of Britain from, from uh, I don't know, the security community here is, is important. But I think the general public here has not perceived very much of that. And what do you think is going to happen in terms of the British role, Kadri, as a result of this? Because I think in many ways um, the Litvinenko uh, crisis was one of the reasons that Britain has underperformed in foreign policy over the last uh, decade or so, because Britain 
because it had its bilateral uh, difficulties with Russia, disengaged from a lot of Eastern questions, was pretty invisible on Georgia, was very, very late to notice what was happening in Ukraine and ended up not being part of the Normandy format or any of the main formats for dealing with Russia, I think partly because of the toxicity of of British-Russian relations. Um, presumably there's a danger of Britain becoming even more marginalised because, it, it, like with Litvinenko, it, it, there is no option of not responding because that just encourages Russia to, to take more advantage of it. But at the same time, the, the tougher the British response is, the harder it is for Britain actually to, to be uh, part of the conversation with Russia on Syria, on Libya, on, uh, or a lot of these other questions like Ukraine. I think it starts elsewhere. I, I think it starts with um, British strategy and, and leadership, and I think we have had some problem there. I, I never understood what was Britain's view of Russia um, already before Brexit, I mean, under David Cameron. It seemed to be quite tactical and opportunistic. And, and that way, of course, I mean... Um, there is there is little you can do because you offer no no substance, you offer no direction to your allies or, or to Russia. So I think a clear strategic view uh, is where it all starts and leadership and ability to have policy. And that would not be unnoticed by by, by Russia if if Britain got there. Uh, now, um, punishment, I think, is essential. One of the biggest mistakes that both Britain and the West as a whole, I would say, has made vis-à-vis Russia was not reacting to Litvinenko because late reaction sent the wrong message. It sent a message that it's not the crime that is the problem, but other things, overall relationship. Crime and punishment are instrumentalized for other ends. They are not ends in itself. That basically contributes uh, to basic misreading of Russia, of the West, uh, and Western thinking and rules and taboos. And, and that is an issue that complicates many things with Russia. So it is time to make clear to Russia that, that crime is linked to punishment. And that's why I'm also happy about Theresa May's statement yesterday. She makes that, that emphasis. Um, and I don't think... Also, you know, when you look at Russia's behaviour, they know when they are guilty um, and they behave accordingly. And I cannot imagine that a chemical weapons attack on the soil of a Western country would be something that we could just brush off. They, they have to be worried. Um, actually, that's exactly what they're doing. It was fascinating looking at the response. You said the Russian foreign ministry was probably not in the loop and it probably wasn't in the loop. But their response was uh, um, a masterpiece of, uh, of, of modern uh, Russian diplomacy where they were mocking Britain for, for its reaction, tweeting out um, ironic um, photos after uh, Theresa May said that Russia was very probably involved in, in the question. They then put out a series of other tweets um, of, of events which Russia was probably involved with, um, like the sinking of the Titanic um, and other negative things. Uh, and I think that's one of the reasons why the British government is feeling the need to respond more aggressively because Russia doesn't seem to be taking it seriously and, and uh, is mocking rather than 
uh, acting as a as a kind of responsible partner in terms of finding out what went on and, and what to deal with it. Indeed, yes, Russian embassy has adopted that ironic, sarcastic style. Um, to be honest, I'm not sure that this actually um, is a good thing to do in in in, in general. Um, but but that is up to them. Um, and yes, to that incident, they reacted exactly that way. Uh, the same way they react to many other claims in the UK, uh, that often are indeed baseless, like, you know, Russia being behind Brexit. I see no evidence of that. And all the fake news that played a role in Brexit were homemade. So on this one, I think the Russian embassy is entirely entitled to be sarcastic. Um, whether to express it so publicly, that's another question. Uh, but, um, so at first they thought that was another um, sort of British scare, unfounded. But I think when detailed emerged, they got gradually more serious and, and you, could, you could see that too. So yet again, it took them a while to catch up with events, but now I think they, they are there. It's not a given that they still know what really happened because, you know, if if these were some shadowy forces from inside Russia, foreign minister will not necessarily know about it. What is interesting to me is Putin's reaction. And from Putin so far, I think we have only one statement to Steve Rosenberg, who walked up to him and asked about it. And Putin basically declined to speak about it because he was visiting some agriculture enterprise and said that we won't discuss those things. Steve Rosenberg from the BBC. I think we should move on to our second major conflict, which is this trade war, which has evolved. Sebastian, do you want to... Uh, it's now been going on for a few days. We've had some tweets. We've had some measures, some countermeasures. Do you want to tell us where we're at? I mean, first, we have to understand that, well, we talk about a war yet, but no single shot has been fired so far. Um, Donald Trump started out saying that he wanted to implement uh, tariffs on steel and aluminium, uh, which most likely are violating WTO rules. Then the EU was in the media saying, well, um, if that happens, we're going to retaliate. Bourbon, Bourbon, uh, Harley-Davidson's. Exactly. Products from uh, either swing states or important congressional districts to, to show... Including the districts of the, the leaders of the Republican Party. In the, exactly. In the, in the House. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, this is so far... Um, but it hasn't happened yet. Yeah. But then, I mean, Donald Trump um, replied and saying, well, a trade war is something good for us and it can easily be won. And if the EU wants to go down that road, we will target uh, European car imports to the United States. Um, so this is, has been going on, but um, so far... We so have how, but can you say how they do that? Uh, do what? Target their car imports to the Well, EU. I mean, they would say if a car... I mean, this is pretty simple. If a car comes in from the, from the European Union, it has to pay a 35% tariff when it enters US territory. But a lot of the German cars are made in the US... Um, that depends on the brand. I mean, BMW and Volkswagen, they are producing in the US, um, but Porsche, for example, is not. Um, some others also are not. Uh, and then, uh, even if they produce cars, and BMW is not just producing for the US market, but also exporting, um, the, uh, what, what you have to see is that still cars are 
being brought from the EU to the US. It is the, um, uh, I mean, uh, German car makers actually are among the largest car exporters of the United States, which, which is an interesting fact. But these cars, of course, would not be affected, but only the other cars being brought in. And that still would be quite hurtful for the European car industry. Okay, so so no shots have been fired yet, but how do, how so how will this play out then if we move beyond the phony war into a real war? Um, the question is whether we really will get there, because I mean I think what what is a given is that the U.S. is going to implement uh, the steel and aluminium tariffs that that will be will come very soon, um, and then the question is is the EU really going to retaliate? So do you want to talk a bit more, because the, the uh, stated goal of this is to stop China from flooding the, the US with cheap subsidized steel. I mean, the, state, the, the, the stated goal is a, is a bit difficult. The stated goal is to say, uh, or Trump has said, that they have to protect their steel and aluminium industry because it's vital for national defense. Um, the, the question is... Uh, I mean, they still have steel in the aluminium industry and there's no sign that it will go completely out of business anytime soon. Plus, at the moment, uh, there aren't that many steel imports from China into the United States because many of these imports are already uh, regulated under safeguard measures and so on. So most of the steel actually comes from other sources, from South Korea, Japan, the EU, uh, India, Brazil. Um, and, well, what, what Trump is trying to do is to um, get the steel industry a breathing room. And I think in one of the papers it was said that they want to increase capacity utilization in the U.S. steel industry to 85% again. So this, I mean, if you look at that, it's a clear protection measure to protect domestic steel industries. So, um, Kadri, how is the... American action being seen in other parts of the world? Because one of the interesting things about this is that Trump is introducing these measures at a time when uh, everything in international relations is becoming much more zero-sum. We're going to talk a bit more, I think, about the Chinese uh, response as well with with, um, with uh, Sebastian and, and what the Europeans uh, uh, could do um, if this escalates. But be interesting to hear what the Russians are saying about this. Do they see this as something which is going to blow up the West? I I haven't seen actually extensive Russian commentary to it, uh, to be honest. But of course, Russian um, Russia would view it in terms of Western coherence, and and they are interested to see what it means to uh, to world order as such. They are asking whether the world order and allied relationships are changing their nature and becoming mercantile in nature, uh, valueless, and what that means to them. And actually, that was already the judgment earlier in the Trump era, that in such a world, actually, Russia is not very well uh, equipped to operate at all. So uh, Russia might dislike the West, but actually, in nature, Russia is sort of ideological power, and in a mercantile world, it it will find it hard to operate. It's not attractive enough, and that's it's not its modus operandi at all. So, in general, I I think that Trump is is difficult for Russia, 
the way he is changing the world on the surface, you could think that Russia likes it. But in reality, it is not necessarily so. It complicates life for them in new ways, and they don't really have responses to those new ways. For as long as the West was coherent and tried to set the norms, Russia was getting more and more skilled using its disruptive power. But now, with Trump, those things have become a lot more complicated. And that's another reason why this false Kripal story, to me, is puzzling. I don't think that in a moment in the world like the one we have now, Russia would want to escalate like that. So, Sebastian, you talked a bit about some of the local parts of this uh, escalation, what Trump administration is doing and what the Europeans are talking about doing. There is uh, also in many European minds, a kind of deeper worry that this isn't just about a little trade war, but that this could actually be about a fundamental disruption of the World Trade Organization and the whole way that we've thought about trade order over the last few years. Mm -hmm. I mean, Donald Trump has hinted that he would be willing to pull out of the World Trade Organization if uh, the World Trade Organization is detrimental to the United States' interest. And this is, in fact, something this this could lead to. I mean, just imagine if, if now shots are fired at some point. So uh, the EU retaliates against Bourbon and Harley-Davidson's, and then uh, the US retaliates against European cars. Um, the EU would probably be forced to retaliate again. And uh, the WTO most likely in these cases would rule in favor of the European Union. We don't know exactly because Trump could say this is national security. That would be Article 21 in the WTO rules, which has never been tested in a dispute settlement. Um, so the, the result really could be that, um, well, if the WTO rules against the US, then Trump could say, well, they are uh, stacked against us, so we just pull out. Um, and this is a completely plausible scenario. And is the WTO an organization that moves that fast? Because, you know, Trump obviously might be president for another six years, uh, six and a half years, but he's not going to be president forever. I thought the WTO was glacially slow and that these, these decisions might get made, um, you know, when Ivanka's in the White House. I mean, uh, <laughs> in principle, you're right. Usually these things move very slowly, but you have things like safeguards and sometimes you can use... Uh, also retaliations which have been awarded to you in the past but you haven't used and you can just pull them out again and you can um, just make them active now. So you, th th there are tools there that something like that could escalate more quickly, especially if the US says, well, we don't wait for, um, for, for the WTO to rule, but we do A, B and C and then the others might, might, might just react. And uh, if... I mean, in the end, it, it will become a political issue if, if Donald Trump believes it's uh, maybe helpful for his re-election to pull out of WTO and to make a point out of that. Uh, I, I don't see why he shouldn't or wouldn't do that. And what would that mean? Because one of the things which has happened a lot in recent times has been, uh, you know, a shift away from universal multilateral trade liberalization towards a, a much more messy trading system made up of a series of, of minilateral and bilateral deals between individual countries and different blocks. And the EU's actually done quite well in that world because it's quite a big block itself, so it's able to 
to uh, to be quite effective in a world where the WTO um, maybe provides a baseline in terms of dispute settlements, but isn't a kind of central part of the um, of the discussion on a lot of issues. I mean, if you go beyond uh, the European Union, most of the world trade is still done under WTO rules. And this is still the backbone of the system. And you see that now that Britain leaves the EU, it will fall back to WTO rules. If we didn't have a WTO, uh, it would not fall back to any rules, but it would have to start negotiating with 150-plus countries on, 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 on trade. Um, so this still is quite important. Plus, it has been a change from GATT to WTO that WTO is seen as much more... Um, uh, equal access than GATT was because we have the dispute settlement which also means the big countries and the industrialized countries have to play by the rules and not just the small countries and all that would go down the drain and um, especially there, there would be the danger that yeah, the, 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 the rule of the strongest would, would return to world trade and the danger here is that some of the big emerging markets and developing countries would also retreat from, from global trade. So how worried are you about that happening? On a scale of one to ten, um, well, I would I would say maybe a four at the moment. Okay, so we'll come back and, and check in with the Duleen monitor as this uh, dispute carries on. Um, but uh, level four, probably a bit less worried than than people are about the the Russian thing in the very short term, wouldn't you say, Kadri? Um. Yes, it seems that the Russian thing um, has bigger urgency for now, but in the future, um, let's see. Okay, so that brings uh, this uh, double-headed podcast to uh, close. We have one thing left to do before we wrap up, which is uh, to talk about our bookshelf segment. Sebastian, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? Um, frankly, I took out of the library book on WTO, Uh, law yesterday to look at the interpretation of Article 21 and 23, um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's a big volume, like a thousand pages, and I don't think I'm going to read it all, but I'll read some chapters on it again. And what about you, Kadri? Yes, well, I'm, um, I don't have a uh, proper book. Uh, I have been reading uh, lots of interviews uh, with former Russian spies about the about the rules of, of spycraft and uh, spy swaps um, to understand what just happened in Salisbury. And um, yeah, as made clear, I don't understand it anyway. Okay, well, I, I, talking about spying, I, I've just started a, quite an interesting book um, called Liquid Surveillance, which is a, a kind of dialogue between Zygmunt Bauman and uh, the sociologist who we talked about in the past on this uh, podcast and uh, an author of uh, many uh, uh, academic studies on, uh, on surveillance who is called David Lyon. And um, the book is a, a fascinating uh, attempt at looking at how the, the world is changing as a result both of the kind of breakdown of a lot of the traditional social structures and the rise of, of surveillance through drones, through the internet and all the other ways in which we are uh, putting ourselves uh, and our behaviours um, out into the open um, and uh, shaping the way that, um, that, that, that our lives, allowing companies and others to shape the way that our lives work. Um, 
I hope that you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. And if you have, would ask you to head straight to Facebook or Twitter um, or whatever other platforms you use to let your friends and acquaintances know about it. But uh, even more helpful than that would be to go to the iTunes page and give us a review or a ranking uh, because that seems to be the best way of, of attracting attention to this website. We'll put links up to all the publications that we mentioned, including um, all of the, the latest commentary on these two crises at our website, which is www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. The editor of ECFR's podcast is Katarina Botella Tinaro. Our researcher is Jonathan Hakenbreich. And from Sebastian Dillin, Kadri Leek, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye for now. Thank you.